Some of you might know that in Buddhist psychology there are a lot of lists to describe how this universe is. Uh, Last week we began with the five spiritual faculties, which is one of the classic lists that describes really the expressions of waking up, the qualities that arise in us as we wake up. And I reviewed four of them and ran out of time. So tonight we're going to be doing uh, the fifth, reviewing and exploring the fifth. Um, But it really, you might have thought we had done four out of five. The fifth itself has three different parts to it, and each part has two different subsections. So... (laughs) So this is a, a kind of linear night, but not really. The, the beauty of the spiritual faculties is, although they're a list in one way and another, they're completely interrelated qualities of awareness, as you'll see. And for the benefit of those that might not have been here last week, can I, first, just so I know, can I see hands? How many weren't here last week? Wow, okay. Well, for your benefit, I will just briefly review the um, spiritual faculties. And the first one that the Buddha described was the faculty of faith. And this isn't some faith that we will never experience pain, that we're not going to die, or that everything's going to go according to our ego's idea of how it should go. Clearly, it's not that. Rather, it's really a trusting, a very deep trusting in how it all is. We're trusting the process. We're trusting our own nature, which is the trust in our Buddha nature, our awakening nature. And as the Buddha described it, and we kind of know this in our personal experiences, when we have faith in something in life, we become more engaged we become more energized. We actually put out more energy or effort towards the unfolding. It's like when we sense where this blooming flower, we want to manifest it, we want to blossom. So the second spiritual faculty the Buddha described is the faculty of wise effort, that we make this effort simply to be present. Wise effort's not a striving. So there's faith, there's making an effort to become fully who we are. The third faculty the Buddha described is mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is the tool of awakening. That's what, how we make the effort is through mindfulness. Mindfulness, quite simply, is that non-judging, present-centered awareness that recognizes what's true, that right now is aware of what's true without interfering, without grasping to it, without pushing it away. Present-centered attention. The fourth faculty the Buddha described as concentration, which is a steadiness, a continuity of mindful attention. It said that to have any penetration, any real deepening of awareness, there needs to be this continuity. And it's perhaps one of the uh, most valuable parts of going to retreat, uh, a meditation retreat, is you begin to experience what it's like to sustain attention over a period of time and a rather radical dropping in to the moment. The attention can become quite laser-like and really penetrate through some of the trance that we're habitually in to see life in an immediate way, to experience life in a really spontaneous, creative, alive way. So those are the first four of the faculties. The fifth that the Buddha described is really the faculty of wisdom. That when we pay attention, when we bring these qualities of effort and mindfulness and concentration to just what's happening, the universe reveals itself. We're there in the moment, which is the only place we can see what's true. There's no wisdom that's possible by um, kind of projecting ahead in time or reflecting on the past. 
we can get some sort of cognitive understandings, but the real deep connecting with truth happens by seeing just what's happening here and now. It's very present-centered. The description of wisdom, our one description is the awakened heart-mind. The word bodhicitta is the word for the awakened heart-mind. So what I'd like to do tonight is talk a bit about how saints and sages and wise beings through the ages have described this awakened heart-mind, and I'll use the Buddhist kind of categories, but it's really a very universal experience of our nature. And one way to think about it is there's an experience or realization of what's true, and there's the expressions of it. And that's been described as kind of absolute truth and then relative, which is the expressions of it, and we'll talk about both. Now, before I launch into this, the Buddha, towards the end of his life, uh, used the phrase ehipasiko, which means generally, come and see for yourself. And it's one of my favorite phrases. I like the sound of the words. <laughs> Ehipasiko. Um, but also, just the meaning of it is that whatever you hear tonight is an attempt using language to point to something. And really, all these experiences are not some um, exotic, inaccessible truth that only you know great Buddhas from the past can find. These are truths about who we are, the nature of mind, that become revealed as we pay attention. So ehipasiko means to know the truth of these things, just pay attention. And if it doesn't fit with your sense of how it all is, put it down, put it aside. With that as a preamble, (laughs) the first of the truths that the Buddha described is the truth of anicca which another, that's the Pali word for impermanence. When we really pay attention, what we notice is nothing holds still. Absolutely nothing holds still. Now we all agree with that. There's an understanding by looking at the broad sweeps of life that yes, we're getting older and yes, the seasons change and the weather changes and the earth's moving and time is passing. So we get the broad sweeps. The gift perhaps of meditation is it becomes quite immediate and microscopic and internally understood. That when we sit down and hold still and simply pay attention to what's happening, it's really clear. It just keeps changing. Even when we feel locked in, if we pay closer attention, when we feel stuck in a state like fear or anger or depression or whatever, if we pay even closer attention, which is always the invitation of the Buddha, what we discover is that things are changing. Heat, temperature, sensations, contraction, expansion, another thought pops up. It just keeps changing. The first characteristic then is the truth of change, that it's all changing. The second characteristic or truth that the Buddha pointed to was that this changing nature of life renders us insecure. And this is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha sometimes translated as suffering but it's also translated as dissatisfaction, uncomfortability. What dukkha means is that in this changing world, if we want to keep anything the same, or if we want to avoid something that we don't like, we're in trouble. Because everything we try to hold on to will change. And anything that inevitably is going to arise or happen, like disease and like old age and like death, will happen. So dukkha means 
the suffering that happens when we try to control things, when we try to make them different than they are. Now, dukkha can be understood in a very um, kind of covert way as that chronic sense of something's not quite right right now. I need something more. I need to do something more. I'm not quite good enough. Where there's this quality that something's going to go wrong around the corner and I need to secure things or accomplish yet one more thing. So it's that, that can be kind of an existential or chronic sense of, of insecurity. And then, of course, there's the very acute kind of dukkha when somebody that we're attached to abandons us or dies or we discover we have a terminal disease. So there's this ever-changing quality of life. And then there's the suffering that happens if we try to make it different than it is. The third characteristic that the Buddha talked about is anatta. And anatta can be ascribed as empty of self. Anatta means that there's no enduring entity that causes experience, that's making this thing happen, this life, that owns it. This changing process of experiencing isn't happening to a someone. Now, when people are listening to these characteristics, usually there's kind of a yeah, 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 nodding with impermanence and yeah, suffering, it's, life is tough, we're all struggling. But when it gets to empty of self, this kind of glazed look can often cross over people's eyes. Uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa described it as this believing in a self is as eyeing and mying, that we have this world kind of organized in our brain as happening to a self, as referring to a self. Now, I'm just to check in with you on this concept of anatta, this idea of it. How many of you have never heard of it before? Never heard of the Buddhist? Um, great, I appreciate you raising your hand. How many of you have heard of it and found it distressful? Be honest. Many people I know. <laughs> okay. Um, I would ask you how many of you have heard it and understand it and embrace it, but we might be too humble for that. (laughs) It's difficult, and this is where ehipastico most comes in, that no self, that this universe is empty of any um, solid, static self, is an experience that arises through paying attention And when we're not paying deep attention, we're living in a conceptual reality that very much believes in a self. This is Lewis Carroll, through the looking glass. I see nobody on the road, said Alice. Oh, I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody, and at that distance, too. If you want to explore the existence or not of a self in there, the sense that there's behind the curtain, there's somebody that's manipulating things, that's causing things to happen, or that it's happening to. If you want to explore that, the practice is to simply keep on recognizing thought forms and letting go, opening out of them. As the Buddha described it, when we're not living in a conceptual reality, when we've relaxed open beyond just the confines of thought forms, not only do a lot of our dukkha and tensions drop away, but any sense of a self drops away. Why? Because self can only exist through our ideas. We have ideas about that there's someone here. If you put aside any of those ideas, what's left? 
There's just this changing stream of experiencing. If you drop all thoughts, all concepts this moment, you'll just hear some sounds, feel sensations, maybe moods arising. It becomes very mysterious because we're not familiar with a world that doesn't reference itself to a self. Jack Cornfield was describing a visit with an old friend, a woman who was, had just returned from Asia. And she had been over there for a number of years and practiced deeply and was considered to be quite wise and quite realized. And so he was visiting her and having breakfast at her house. And she was a, six, in a woman in her 60s and uh, a housewife, and she was making breakfast busily, you know, preparing things. And then she turned to him casually and said, you know, it's so amazing. People will choose the quicksand of somethingness over the firm ground of emptiness. We want to hold on to thingness rather than this kind of mysterious, seamless flow of experience. We try to latch on to make sense of things, to organize around things, basically to control things. So ehi pasiko, looking and seeing, is to see that this is happening. We begin to see this kind of holding on to thought forms, holding on to this basic idea of a self. And then we begin to pull the curtain and look, is there anyone there? If you look for a self, can you find a self? The fruit of practice is described as an enormous freedom that comes in the realization that there's no self there because in that realization we relax back into the life that is our essence. There's a wonderful birthday card that the Dalai Lama, that has a picture of the Dalai Lama in it, and he's opening a birthday gift in this birthday card, and he looks in and what he sees is that the box is empty, and he said, nothing, just what I always wanted. <laughs> We all have touched the freedom of moments when we're not so wrapped around a sense of self. We might not have called it, oh, I'm experiencing anatta, emptiness of self, but we know what it's like when we're there and just feeling a genuine care or concern for someone else, or when we're feeling just a kind of awe in nature, or just kind of lost in the beauty of music or art. There's a sense that when we're not wrapped around ourselves, that this world is a much more vast and spacious and free place. This is probably the most well-known quote on emptiness in, in, many of, in much of the Vipassana tradition anyway, but it comes from Ramana Maharshi. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now this is absolute bodhicitta. These are the truths of awakening as described in Uh, the three characteristics in the Buddhist tradition. What becomes quite uh, relevant to us and maybe sometimes easier to access is the way these truths are expressed. The expression of the truth of impermanence. What happens when we really get it? When we really sense in a cellular way it's all changing. It's all changing very fast as these moments are flowing by and there's nothing we can hold on to. What happens? It's described that the wisdom of impermanence, the gift of impermanence, is it allows us to really live fully, 
to go with the flow, to really live the adventure of life. In a story about a Sufi master, um, he died and at his funeral, one of the disciples was asking, well, what was most important to our master? And the response was, whatever he happened to be doing at that moment. Who was most important? Whoever he was with. If we know this life is impermanent, it frees us to just drop in and live fully this moment, letting this one count. This one comes and this one goes, and then the next, and then the next. Fully engaged. And it's really the description of the bodhisattva, the awakened being, that there's quite a degree of of spontaneity and humor and creativity because there's really the sense of letting go into the flow. Now this is Kazantzakis. This is Zorba the Greek. Maybe you're right, boss. It all depends on the way you look at it. Look, one day I had gone to a little village. An old grandfather of 90 was busy planting an almond tree. What granddad, I exclaimed? Planting an almond tree? They grow very, very slowly. And he, bent as he was, turned around and said, My son, I carry on as if I should never die. I replied, And I carry on as if I was going to die any minute. Which one of us was right, boss? This sense of impermanence, the truth of impermanence, gives us both the sense of unlimited possibility that life keeps on being creative. Every moment's a new creative moment. And a sense of the preciousness of this moment, because this is it. This is the last one of this type. On it goes. Now, for many of us, the great teacher of impermanence is when we look into the face of our mortality. It's described in so many spiritual traditions as the the one great teacher to wake us up. Read you something that I just found the other day by Og Mondino. Beginning today, treat everyone you meet as if he or she were going to be dead by midnight. Extend to them all the care, kindness, and understanding you can muster, and do so with no thought of any reward. Your life will never be the same again. This reflection on impermanence is a very, very much a part of the Buddhist traditions. And um, it's something that I find if, if I myself am on, you know, reflecting on friends and loved ones and people in my life, and I really connect with that truth that, uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh describes it, you're going to die and I'm going to die, and we have this moment together then I find I kind of wake up into those moments. This was a particularly live one for me in recent weeks because my dad uh, just had heart surgery, real serious heart surgery. And so in these last weeks leading up to it, I was acutely aware of, you know, hey, I might not be with him. I might not have any, many more moments on this earth plane And there was certainly all the fear and grabbing and, you know, being locked in in that way. But there's also this quality of an enormous sense of of presence. And it it was a quality of engagement that's rare. I think, for me or for most of us. And and I'm sure that practically everyone in here that's lost anybody close knows what it's like to have the specter of death wake us up to the preciousness. For many, if you haven't lost someone close, it's just starting to know that, that we don't have that long. And it's an incredibly wonderful reflection. Not, it's not morbid. It's actually um, a way of bowing to this life to remember that it's not that long. So there's the gift of impermanence. 
this kind of remembering and cherishing the moment and letting go into the next one and the next one so that we're really living in a free and awake way. And then there's dukkha, the the second of the characteristics, this quality of discontent when we hold on and when we realize, really realize how much suffering comes from trying to make things different, holding things as they are, pushing things away. Again, there's a quality of letting go. There's also, with realizing suffering, an amazing opening of the heart. This isn't a cognitive recognition of suffering. It's when we really open to our own sorrows and fears and feelings of disappointment, when we really open to the places of vulnerability in us, we can open to that in each other and feel this basic connectedness. There's a deep sense of compassion and connectedness that arises in that. I was reading about the Dalai Lama's travels in the West and his translator was describing how in every city, he, would tra- he traveled with them to hundreds and hundreds of cities, and in every city he'd begin his talks in exactly the same way. He'd say, we all want to be happy, we all do not want to suffer. We all want to be happy, we all do not want to suffer. And so the question is, why was he <laughs> saying this over and over and over again? And gradually it became clear that just that reflection, if you bring to mind anybody and really go deep into that reflection, you find the essence of our connectedness. We all want to be happy. We all want to be happy in the way that's not hooked to particulars. We want that deep happiness, that freedom of spirit. Imagine going through life and really with the people that you connect with, with the people that come to mind, just touching into that truth, that sense that this being too, this being just basically wants to be happy. And this being doesn't want to suffer. It's a very beautiful reflection. So in service of it, let's just take a moment and sit up and connect with our bodies, feel our hearts. Allow yourself to become at home in this moment again by feeling the body. Loosen in the belly some so that the awareness can drop deep into you. And feel your heart. Just what's real. Might be a quality of numbness or disconnect. Or for others, rawness, vulnerability or maybe warmth and openness, but just feel what's there. And sense that phrase, we all want to be happy. We all want that happiness, that freedom. We all do not want to suffer. We don't want to be caught caught in smallness and reactivity. Sense how this is true for you. The aspiration towards freedom. The aspiration to wake up, to not be caught, to not be stuck, to not be asleep. This is who we are. This aspiration reflects 
our Buddha nature. And then bring someone to mind, someone that's a part of your life that you care about. And sense this truth with that being too, just as I want to awaken, be happy, be free of suffering, so this being does too. And sense how that's true. Aware of that being's longings, aware of that being's fears, As with any meditation, if your mind drifts, just gently come back and sense the person that you've invoked again. This being too wants to be happy, does not want to suffer. bringing to mind another person. Sense their longing to live fully, to love fully, to be happy. Sense the truth that they too want freedom, freedom from suffering, freedom to be fully who they are. Feel the connection of your heart. We are the same in this way, in this very deep way. And then another. Maybe someone who's challenging that you sometimes find difficult. Sense how this being also wants to love and be loved, to be appreciated to be understood in the deepest way wants freedom. So the gift of paying attention to the truth of suffering is compassion. It's our habit to avoid uh, seeing or feeling what's difficult inside ourselves. And so it's naturally difficult to feel the suffering in others when we do that. So it's a basic part of the Buddhist path to open to what's true. It's the first noble truth. Suffering exists. In opening and fully being with, in a compassionate way, this suffering, we cultivate the open awareness that can embrace all beings. This is George Washington Carver. How far you go in life 
depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. Now, the last truth that I had mentioned tonight, this truth of anatta, our emptiness of a, a solid self in there, the gift of that and the expression of that is a sense of the wonder and mystery of being alive. When we're not lost in the smallness of a world organized around self, we belong to this very radiant, boundless, universal awareness. The self dissolves just as we begin to look for the self. If we ask that question, who's aware? Who's listening right now? And I invite you to do so. It's always a good time to just drop everything and check inside. Who's listening to this Dharma talk? Turn the awareness and see if you can find a self that's listening. Take a moment. Try it. Who's listening right now? Who's even looking for a self? Notice what happens when you turn the mind and look. The disciple Huai Kui asked Bodhidharma, please help me to quiet my mind. Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind so that I can quiet it. After a moment, Huai Kui said, but I can't find my mind. There, said Bodhidharma, I have now quieted your mind. (laughs) Can you find a self? Anyone finding a self? Is there any self out there? You know, in the Gospel according to Zen, there's a beautiful saying, there's no place to seek the mind. It is like the footprints of the birds in the sky. It's all changing. You know, if we look, we'll see phenomenon, appearances, light, energy, pressure, sadness, fear, confusion. It's a changing display. And we can call a combination of those things that we're familiar with self. But at any given moment, if we try to say, well, there is self, we're just going to be seeing more of this changing display. So the practice that we end up doing this when we practice the ehipasiko, see for yourself, is really to just, if we feel very solid or grasping or clinging, you can turn around and ask that question, who's afraid? Who's grasping? Who's attached? Who's listening? And sincerely, genuinely look. Not Not a tense looking, but a very relaxed, honest looking to see who's there. And then after looking, Whatever is experience, whatever you see, just relax and become that. Re-enter the stream. This practice of re-entering the stream, of just letting go of these ideas and becoming part of it all, lets us know in the deepest way that we're absolutely connected, interdependent with everything else in the universe. When there's no separate self, when we realize we're no thing, we genuinely do become everything. I'll tell you, my, perhaps my most daily experience in anatta is a very simple one, whereby um, I'm, I run around the neighborhood with my dog. My dog's name is Tara also, so 
we're, and we're very bonded, <laughs> which helps with anatta. You know, if you have another Tara just sitting there, it's the sense of being a special, different person kind of starts melting some. But so we go for runs pretty regularly, and it used to be that as soon as I would walk into the living room with my sneakers on, she would just leap up and start frantically circling around and wagging her tail. And then gradually what started happening was I would go into my room to put my sneakers on and as I was sitting and putting my sneakers on, she'd tear in and find me there and you know, catch me in the act. Now, I usually sit by my computer and I have the idea that I'm about to go for a run. <laughs> she races into my office <laughs> with her tail flashing back and forth. What I'm predicting is that I won't have the idea that she'll come in and all of a sudden I'll realize it's time for a run. But, but who owns the thought, you know? When I have that thought, and this, this is not some psychic woo-woo-woo, this really happens. I sit in there and I'm just getting ready to get up and put my sneakers on and in she comes. This connectedness is realized when we stop owning what's happening as my or thinking that it's me that's causing things. Now, here's another story for you. The emperor of China asked a renowned Buddhist master if it would be possible to illustrate the nature of self in a visible way. In response, the master had a 16-sided room appointed with floor-to-ceiling mirrors that faced one another exactly. In the center, he hung a candle aflame. When the emperor entered, he could see the individual candle flame in thousands of forms, each of the mirrors extending it far into the distance. Then the master replaced the candle with a small crystal. The emperor could see the small crystal reflected again in every direction. When the master pointed closely at the crystal, the emperor could see the whole room of thousands of crystals reflected in each tiny facet of the crystal in the center. The master showed how the smallest particle contains the whole universe. The gift of realizing emptiness is opening to include this whole universe that's appearing and dancing and flashing and sounding itself through awareness. There's nothing outside of mind. It's all included. The whole universe reflected. Now, another dimension to this experience of not being wrapped around a sense of separate self is a quality of belonging. And it's very real and very earthy. It's a quality of, at this moment, that everything we experience belongs to this universe. That we belong to the sounds, we belong to the vibrations, we belong to the clay of this earth and to the space of the skies. This is beautifully described in a poem by Allah René Bozarth. The small plot of ground on which you were born cannot be expected to stay forever the same. The earth changes and home becomes different places. You took flesh from clay, but the clay did not come from just one place. To feel alive, important, and safe Know your own waters and hells, but no more. You have stars in your bones and oceans in blood. You have opposing terrain in each eye. You belong to the land and sky of your first cry. You belong to infinity. In suggesting these five faculties of trusting our nature, of making the effort to look, and of looking deeply and wisely at what's true. 
we open to this realization of who we are, to this sense of belonging to this universe and that all that arises in our experience belongs to awareness. And there's a deep sense of connection and freedom that comes with that. The notion of being empty of self, that all experience is empty of self, doesn't in any way deny the preciousness or uniqueness of any moment. I read you once again. The core contradiction is between the forceful impression of emptiness, the feeling that there is nothing at all that has absolute existence, and the equal forceful impression of the singularity and beauty of each thing. We see that the waves are really the ocean, yet the waves persist in having shape and loveliness beyond this abstract spiritual truth. So we open up and we say things like, the mountains are dancing. Let's say, from a Zen teacher, to honor that when we see this changing and permanent world and we see that there's no solid self when we look behind the curtain, that in no way takes away from the loveliness and the preciousness of whatever particular form is arising. Rather, we can honor it and bow to it, but not grab onto it, not try to own it, we can let go and let be again and again. So these are the gifts of paying attention. Celestia says, God, God whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. We let go of this solid self-sense. And each moment, each moment that we bring a full presence, a hipposico, We really look and see in a live way to just what's here. This wisdom and this compassion opens in us more and more. And as I mentioned, these faculties are all interdependent because as we touch each moment into this changing, radiant flow of life, that deepens our faith in who we are. And with deepened faith, we make the effort to become more fully an expression of that Buddha nature, and on and on. So we'll close by sitting once again, and again the invitation of the Buddha to sit, to become still, to sit under the Bodhi tree. We're all under this Bodhi tree of awakening. and to simply pay attention to the changing stream of experience. The given is that there's pleasantness and unpleasantness. Our peace and freedom come when we have the courage to simply open to what is with a tender and clear heart and mind. Just this moment opening and touching what's here, seeing what's true, resting in awareness.
We'll close chanting as we opened with the mantra Om. We'll chant. Please inhale deeply. suffering. May all beings discover the freedom of their Buddha nature, their awakened heart-mind. We have a few minutes for any questions you might have, but because I know some people need to leave, I just want to make the announcement you're going to be hearing every week from now until October, (laughs) which is a reminder that we will be in the first week of October switching the Tuesday night class to the Wednesday night class. (laughs) So for those of you that haven't heard it, uh, please spread the word um, so that any one that can make changes in their schedule to still join us can do so. Thank you. That starts the first week in October, yeah. Yeah. So, um, again, there's only a few minutes, but I'd like to just check in with you and see if anyone has any questions or comments on your experience tonight. Pretty much. <laughs> um, I'll say a little bit. First, it's, it's very true that the different schools in Buddhism have a kind of different emphasis on what it means to be compassionate in this world. And the Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana traditions place much more emphasis on the bodhisattva ideal. And that is that the awakening being 
a natural expression of that awakening nature is to be of benefit, of real benefit to all beings, that we're not um, separate selves racing towards the finish line of enlightenment, where we're kind of, we might be emanating all sorts of feelings of compassion, but we're really going for broke. Rather, we are inextricably linked with each other, and the very nature of waking up is to reach out. And uh, I can speak then personally and say, for me, that means having quite a conscious and overt intention about reaching out. Where I reach out, it might not be what you're describing as the areas of most acute suffering. I, I, I have a little more of a level, leveled out. It's not all, you know, it doesn't have to be someone with AIDS. It could be somebody with um, a different kind of suffering. But I, I do think it's really part of waking up to make that very intentional and overt, our, our wish to be of benefit. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Speak So the question is, what's more important, the reaching out or the outcome of reaching out? Um, I would actually say what's most important is the intention in reaching out. Um, if you're in t- if you're, the place you're reaching out from is a place of genuine caring, then my inclination is to trust the outcome, even though you, I might not be able to predict cognitively how it's going to be. And, and I find that most practical also as a place to pay attention, is to just keep coming back to intention, which brings us back to why practice on Tuesday nights, that we can be, um, have our idea of ourselves as a bodhisattva in the world changing things, but if it comes from a place of fear and anger and grasping, it perpetuates those same qualities. So to have a way of very honestly uh, connecting with our inner life and cultivating um, a pure kind of compassion actually ha- in- helps to ensure that the outcome be something that's actually helpful. So, thank you for bringing that in. Yeah, please. You know, we're all, we all have different kind of um, tasks that are part of our healing and waking up process. And for some people, consolidating a sense of self is absolutely the necessary, important task. And to pay attention to trying to see emptiness of self is not only disorienting, it's, co- it's counterproductive. So for you, drop that. Rather do the practices of coming into a place of relaxation and presence and kindness and don't worry about, you know, pulling the veil and seeing emptiness. Uh, And and this is really, I'm I'm actually really glad you brought this up. You you know, at different points in our practice, different um, meditations or emphases are going to be valuable. So please, um, ehipasiko, sense for yourself what is useful. And for some of you, it's going to be really learning to concentrate and to stabilize your attention and find that you can touch peace a bit. And for others, it's going to be that quality of really seeing how much you can open to and not control things. And for others, you're going to sense that there's somebody in there trying to open and trying to control and that it becomes quite freeing to look and see who the doer is, in which case you're looking a bit into the emptiness of self. And they're all valuable parts of the path. And if you have questions about, hey, what should I emphasize? That's, um, you know, I'd like to invite you to talk to me. And there's others that are teaching now, Lynn and Louise at Tacoma Park, and others that have been doing this for a while, and, and get some guidance on, should I lean to the left, lean to the right? So th- thanks a lot, Monica.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.